dismiss our children who are sixth grade and under to head upstairs for kids' crew worship as they make their way to the front. They will meet our leaders and head upstairs. If you are visiting with us today, if perhaps you're new, maybe you're here with family or friends, uh, after the service, you'll be able to locate your kids upstairs on the east side, just beyond the exit on this east side. On the second floor, you'll find our kids' crew room, and that's where they will be for you to uh, retrieve them when the service is finished this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 as we continue our study this morning, looking at the Ten Commandments. Each of these commandments we are studying on its own, uh, not just looking at, at the ten of them all at once, but systematically working our way through each of the ten commandments over ten weeks this summer. And so we find ourselves this morning on the sixth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Of course, this commandment needs, uh, I suppose in some way, very little support for us to understand why God would give us this commandment, why this is, murder is prohibited. The laws of our land uh, themselves say that murder is illegal. Uh, the laws of, of every nation say that you should not murder, you should not kill. And yet, all of these civil laws really are derived from the moral law of God, which is given here in Exodus chapter 20. And so let's study it in depth this morning to understand why would God give this commandment? Why? What is the, what is the, the underlying principle here? What is, the, what is the order that is being established by the law of God. And so we'll understand all of that as we work our way through. Let's read together Exodus 20, 13. I, I suppose uh, one, of the, one of the shorter verses that we will ever study on a Sunday morning, and, and certainly in the list of the Ten Commandments, these next three are each rather brief. But it says simply, you shall not murder. And so in the in the actual language itself, in, in the Hebrew language, the original language, this is two words, and it simply says, no kill. That's what it means, that you shall not murder. And, and the, so what is the intent behind this? If we are not to murder, if we are not to kill others, uh, does that mean that all forms of killing, does that rule out corporal punishment, does it, uh, uh, does it rule out um, things like uh, war. Is there such thing as a just cause for war? So th- those things all really stem from the, the important understanding of this verse. And so I want us to consider it and its ramifications and all of its uh, deeper meaning as we study through this this morning. As we do that, uh, simply what I have done is I've tried to lay out four points that we will follow. You'll see on your sermon guide that you'll find the four different points for my my message this morning. And each of these points is intended to point us to the heart of why God would give this law. Why? We're wanting to to dig in and, and, and ask the question, why is murder wrong? Why would God give this commandment? And so we'll do that by following this thought as we develop it through each of these points this morning. But as we sort of wade into that, I want to remind us first and foremost about the 
the law itself, the Ten Commandments themselves, as we have seen in our study through the Ten Commandments, we find that we are no longer under the law, is what Galatians chapter 3 tells us in verse 10, that we are no longer under the law. But that does not mean that we shouldn't follow the law. It doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments need to be thrown out as though they no longer apply to us. Because if that were the case, then this prohibition would be lifted. And we could, you know, it would be like the, the movie, um, oh, it's leaving me now, the movie where they have like the one night of the year where they can, you know, where I've not ever seen it, but supposedly the story is there's the one night, the purge, I think it's called, you know. Uh, it would, that would be like, that would be free game, something like that, if in fact this law were thrown out and no longer applied to us, right? That we could kill, we could do whatever we want. Certainly that's not the case. That's not the, the intent behind Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. The point of Galatians 3 is not to say that we're no longer bound to keep the law or that we should no longer follow the law, the Ten Commandments, but instead saying that we are not redeemed through the law. We are not under the law in the sense that we place our hope for salvation in the law, but rather our hope comes through Christ. But to say that we should throw the law out, that we should no longer follow the Ten Commandments, would be completely against the heart and the intention of the New Testament writers. In fact, Jesus himself said, as we have seen in Matthew, that that we will be blessed by keeping the Ten Commandments, by following the law. And in fact, we'll even see this morning that Jesus goes even further with his understanding and his application of the law. Specifically, we'll look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, where Jesus deals with this commandment. And he takes the commandment even further than just the very face value of the command itself. And so let's, let's understand these as we wade in and we understand the why behind this. The first point that I want us to see as to why murder is wrong. Why does the law, does God prohibit murder in the law? Is because murder devalues the image entrusted by God. We see from the very beginning of creation in Genesis that mankind is created in the image of God. We are image bearers. It's the imago Dei, the image of God, meaning that as as humanity, as mankind, we are unique from all the rest of creation in that we have been created in God's image. When, when someone commits the sin of murder, essentially what they have done is they, they violate this image of God. They devalue this image of God. They treat as worthless something that is of infinite worth. When I was a boy... I collected baseball cards. In my attic, still, uh, somewhere in a box, is my baseball card collection that, that has been drawing dust. I remember thinking to myself when I was maybe around 12, 13 years old, I'm going to hold on to these, and someday when I have kids, I'm going to give these cards to my kids, and they're really going to be worth something. And they're not. They're probably just as worthless now as they were then. But I remember when I was a boy talking to my dad about his baseball card collection that he had when he was about the same age. And my dad told me the story of how they would take their baseball cards and they would stick them in between the spokes of their bicycle wheels so that as they rode their bicycles, it would make this neat clicking noise that they really liked. And 
they took cards that in my day, when I was a boy, would have been extremely valuable then, so who knows what they might be worth now, and, and they would stick them in the spokes of their bicycle wheels. And I remember thinking that somebody needed to punish my dad and any other child that had ever committed this sin against baseball card collectors everywhere by treating something of, of great value as worthless. Well, in a way that is so much more profound, when, when someone commits murder, they are guilty of treating as worthless something that is of supreme value. Because as humanity, as, as men and women, we bear the image of God. We have supreme, ultimate worth in this life because of the one who gave us life. Life is his gift, and as such, we ought to treat it accordingly. But the truth is that murder, the, the sin of murder, if you will, is as old as humanity itself. When we read in the earliest accounts of the earliest uh, men and women in Genesis, we come in Genesis chapter 4 to the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. And, and one brother kills another brother and, and, and commits the first act of murder. And we see in that, that that the heart of man is wicked because the heart of man wants what it wants and is willing to do anything to get what it wants in Hebrews chapter 11 in interpreting the story of what's happening in Genesis chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because the blood of Jesus cries out redemption. In, in Genesis chapter 4, God says to Cain that your brother's blood is crying out from the ground, but the shed blood of Jesus speaks a better word, the writer of Hebrews says. It proclaims the forgiveness of God over sin because Jesus spilt his blood for us. So life is of ultimate worth in large part because God has endowed us with his image. When we commit the, the sin of murder, we devalue that image of God that has been entrusted to us. But not only is murder wrong because it devalues the image of God, murder is wrong because it corrupts the power permitted by God. Again, if we go back to the story of creation, God gave Adam this important instruction that he was to have dominion over creation. And then after creating Eve, God says to them to be fruitful and multiply. Literally, God has entrusted to humanity the power to, to make life itself. And that's not unique to, to men and women. We see in all of creation in the animal kingdom, right, that there is reproduction, and not just even in the animal kingdom, but in all of creation, we see reproduction. We see new life. But as men and women, we are entrusted with this supreme power to create even life itself. And murder corrupts that power that God has permitted. After the flood, God is giving instruction to Noah in Genesis chapter 9. He's giving a, 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 a set of commandments to Noah. And he speaks this word in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man 
in his own image. As, as humanity, as, as, as God's created beings, we are, to, we are to treat with sacred trust the power to create life that has been given to us. And murder corrupts that power. Corruption of power, of course, is, is a misuse of power. When we think of corruption of power today, we often think of politics. It's just the way that, at least that's the way that I think. When I think, when I, even when I hear the word corruption itself, the first thing that my mind goes to is, is politics and the corruption, the misuse of power that we see in, in the political realm. But that word corruption really just means that something that is misused, something that is not used in the way that it is intended. God has entrusted to us the power to create life. And when we take life, we see that it's an ultimate corruption of that power. This is one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why uh, not only murder in, in general, but specifically, I, I think abortion is such a bane on, on our, our culture today. is because it is this, this perversion, if you will, of power, this corruption of power that we would, that we would act like God in the sense that we would take life. Life is, is, is an incredible gift. And when we commit murder, we corrupt that power that God has entrusted to us. But we go further and we see that murder also exposes the heart not held by God. And what I mean when I say a heart that is held by God, I, I mean specifically a, a heart that is yielded to God, a heart that has been surrendered to him, a heart that has been offered to God as an act of worship. Romans chapter 12 describes us living our lives as living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices, that this is our spiritual worship. When we offer our lives to God, when we give him our heart, when we live surrendered to him and murder exposes a heart that's not held by God, it, it exposes a heart that's not yielded or surrendered, but rather one that is, that is full of, uh, of hatred and anger. Part of the reason why I think that is so telling and, 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 and really such an indictment is because God is loving and just. He's, he's the antithesis of hate and anger. He's loving and he is just. Because God is loving and just, we ought to live with the same sense of love and justice. You know, Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 5. And so, if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 21. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And in preaching this, through the Sermon on the Mount, or, or, or giving, I should say, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with many of the commandments. And he, he addresses the commandment itself, but then he takes the point even further. He establishes an even greater standard of the commandments. 
And the point of what Jesus is doing is that he is setting the bar so impossibly high, the bar of righteousness, the bar of what it takes to have right standing before God. He is setting the bar so impossibly high to show that there's no way that we can achieve this on our own doing, that we, we need God. We need to be surrendered to him. We need faith in Jesus, the one who, who meets the standard of God for us. And so Matthew 5, 21 Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And he's speaking, of course, to the, the, the commandments here, the children of Israel that were given these commandments. You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So let's, let's, let's look at this. He's, he's said essentially three different ways here that when we live with anger, that it's, it's even worse than murder, that, that it's even worse. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, we read, John says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Murder shows, it exposes a heart that is full of, of anger and, and hatred. And Jesus says plainly that if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. Now, some have understood this to mean that we should never be angry. Jesus himself was angry at times, though. We see, particularly in the life of Jesus in the Passion Week, we see that Jesus went into the, the temple court and he drove out the lenders and the, and, and the money uh, the money changers. He drove out those people who, had, who were corrupting the system of worship. We see the brokenness that he has over sin and, and death. And even in the life of Jesus, we see a righteous kind of anger. This is, not, this is not a prohibition against anger, as though all forms of anger are wrong. But this is speaking, I, I believe, to be of, a, of an unjust form of anger. Someone who holds on to anger when they should seek forgiveness and, and to be right with the brother. And I would, I would just serve to you uh, or, or point you to verse 23 and following as the, the support, if you will, of that. That he's talking here about being right with someone else. So if, you ha- if you're at the altar and, and you realize that there's something between you and a brother, you should leave your gift at the altar. You should go and seek to be right with your brother and then come back and offer your gift to God. This is, this is about having right standing with others. If there's, if there's an, an unjust or an, uh, we might say an unrighteous kind of anger. But not only does he say here that anyone who is angry with a brother, but he goes on to say, whoever insults his brother, the word insults there, in, again, in the language, is it uses this Aramaic word that says, you fool, that raka, anyone says raka to his brother. And what that means is that if you say something insulting, if you speak ill against a brother and you insult them, then it says, you'll be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, and the word you fool there 
is based on the word, it's the word moros, which is where we get our word moron. And so it's more than just insulting a brother, but if you demean them and you, and you hold contempt against them and are demeaning toward them. And so the point of all of this is that Jesus is saying, look, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. What I want to tell you is that the real standard of righteousness is this. Murder takes many forms. It's not just killing someone, but it's even the the posture of your heart toward them. That if you have anger and hate toward others in your heart, that you're, you're just as guilty as a murderer. Jesus sets a standard for us that is impossible for us to keep. Because although... I would, I would say that for most of us, if not all of us, that we're not really going to be tempted to physically murder someone. I mean, there are times maybe when you get really mad at somebody, but physically we're not going to be tempted to murder, most likely. But every one of us, every one of us have spoken against someone else, a brother or a sister. Every one of us have had an unjust unrighteous form of anger toward others. Every one of us has been guilty of uh, essentially what he says here, saying, uh, saying you fool, insulting brothers. We, we've all committed these kinds of sin. And as such, we are all murderers in the sense that we've violated this law of God, particularly the way that Jesus interprets it. But what does that mean for us then? Well, We'll, we'll find the good news in all of this in a moment. But ultimately, what I want us to see is that it exposes our hearts. Murder exposes a heart that's not held by God. And I'm speaking quite broadly here. I'm not just talking about the physical act of killing someone else. But even as Jesus defines murder in this sense, it exposes a heart full of anger and hate. God is loving and just, and as such, we should seek to live in ways that are loving and just and honor him. Finally, we see this point. I suppose most importantly even, murder robs the greatest gift given by God. Murder, ending a life, taking someone's life. We describe it that way, right? That someone took a life. Well, they've done is they've robbed God's greatest gift. Life itself is God's greatest gift, his most precious gift. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says that he's come that we may have life and that we may have it abundantly. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus is praying to the Father and he prays that they may know eternal life. And he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you sent. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John writes that he has written all of these things in his letter so that, they may have, so that his readers, which ultimately is us, right, the church, that we may have confidence in our eternal life. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life is God's greatest gift. But not just life here and now, but even eternal life ultimately for those who trust in Jesus, those who place their faith in him. And murder takes 
that life physically. Now, no murderer can rob someone of their eternal life. That's not what I'm saying. But, I, but, but in the sense that murdering is taking someone's life, it's robbing them of that gift of God. It's essentially, it's playing God as it's been described. We should entrust judgment to God. We should entrust him to be the one who, who hands out judgment and not take that in our own hands. So what about what about things like uh, just war? Is there a just cause for war? What about things like uh, capital punishment? What about, uh, what about if someone commits a sin? Is, or is there justifiable cause for taking another human life? Let me just say that it's not easy to answer any of those questions, right? I mean, all of those deserve some, some extensive treatment of the scriptures and, and, and thorough study of what the Bible is teaching. But on the surface, okay, the point of Exodus chapter 20 verse 13 is not to rule out capital punishment. It's not to rule out war because you can study the rest of the Hebrew law and you will find just cause for war, just cause for capital punishment. You'll find reasons why, why taking life as seen as an appropriate punishment for certain sins, certain wrong that has been done in the law itself. And so if the point of the rest of the law is to build off of the moral foundation, it would be a complete contradiction for God to say, you shall not murder, and then go on to say that here are certain offenses that require that the person who commits this sin should die, right? That, that wouldn't match at all. So we won't deal with all of that in its, in its full depth this morning because it would be chasing a, a bit of a rabbit. But let me just say that the point of what is being said here in Exodus 20.13 is aimed specifically, I believe, at what we consider to be not just killing, not just taking a life, but specifically what we would call murder itself. Murder devalues the image entrusted to us by God. Murder corrupts the power permitted by God. Murder exposes a heart that's not held by God. And ultimately, murder robs the greatest gift that God has given us. Life itself, and specifically human life, is God's gift. It's a precious gift given to us. So he gives us the command, do not murder. Now, I don't suppose that at the outset today, there would have been anyone in the room that would have said, oh, well, I thought it was okay to murder someone else. And, and, and it, my, my goal this morning isn't to try to convince us of what we all believe to be obvious and true. We know that murder is wrong. We know that we shouldn't murder. We, uh, the laws of our land support that. The, just the, the, the basic human experience even supports the idea that we shouldn't murder other people. But here's, here's the point that I want you to see in all of this this morning, is that too often, too often, we take what is precious and invaluable, life itself, and we have contempt toward it. 
we treat it as though, as though it's not the precious, invaluable gift that it is. And what we ought to do instead is we ought to try to prize life. We ought to value life the way that God values life. Knowing that we're created in the image of God, every one of us. None of us is a mistake. None of us is an accident. Every one of us has been given life by a loving creator. So we prize and we cherish that life. Not only that, we champion life. Life for the unborn. Life for everyone, every man, every woman, every child, regardless of, uh, of, of how much money they have, regardless of the family that they come from, regardless of uh, their social status, right? All life is valuable in God's eyes. We champion life. Both here in our community, in our state, in our nation, and ultimately even to the ends of the world itself. We champion the cause of life. And then also importantly, because we value life as given by God, because we champion life, because we understand the gift it is, and we champion that gift as being from God, we ought to make the most of the gift that has been entrusted to us. See, if life truly is God's greatest gift, then we need to ask ourselves the question, Am I being responsible with the gift that's been given to me? My life, the way that I use my life, the way that I use my abilities, my gift, what's been given and entrusted to me, am I making the most of that for the kingdom of God? I believe that there is no greater gift than life itself. And I also believe that if we seek to honor God and faithfully carry out the heart of his word and the heart of this commandment that we need to wake up every day intent upon making the most of the gift that has been entrusted to us. Many years ago, in fact, in 2003, I was working as a youth pastor at a church in Oklahoma City, Council Road Baptist Church. There was a student in our youth ministry. His name was Justin Sullivan. Justin was a baseball player at UConn High School. He was a pretty good baseball player. In fact, he was a really good baseball player. And on June the 2nd, 2000, and I said 2003 a moment ago. It was actually 2002. On June the 2nd, 2002, the Daily Oklahoman named Justin the baseball, the state baseball player of the year. That same day, he got a call from Larry Koshell, the, then the coach of the OU baseball team, saying, Justin, we really want you to come and play at OU. A scholarship offer to play baseball at OU. The very next day, about 11 o'clock in the morning, as Justin was traveling home from his summer job with a group of friends, he was headed westbound on I-44, around May Avenue. And if you're familiar with that area in Oklahoma City, the highway goes under May Avenue. And as they were about to head under May Avenue on I-44, there was a truck headed eastbound. And the back tire came off of this semi-truck and crossed over the median and hit Justin's Jeep Cherokee, killing him instantly. 
And in the days following that, as we were grieving as a church and a community, as we were mourning the loss of such a phenomenal young man, began to, began to look at a journal that he kept. His parents had these journals and began to, to cull through that. And one of the things that Justin spoke of in one of his journals, this was shared at his funeral as well. One of the things that he wrote about is that life is a precious gift from God. And he wrote that we should do everything we can to honor him and to treat every day as a special gift from God. I'll never forget feeling like what a tragic loss of someone who had so much potential and so much promise. It seemed like there were so many more great things Justin could have done for God. And yet on that day, it was Justin's time to meet Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 tells us that it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. And for reasons that I don't understand, that day was Justin's day. One of the things I remember that was shared at his funeral was the thought that, you know, it doesn't matter if you live 18 years or you live 80 years. The point is not that we would count our days, but that we would make our days count. That we would live life in such a way that there is a fullness of life, that there is a, that there is a hope, that there is a vibrancy in us that would show the hope of Jesus to a lost and a dying world. And I really truly believe that the heart behind this commandment is not just aimed at a prohibition from taking life, but it's to show us the supreme and infinite value of life. That we're not just to not murder, but rather we're to value life. And part of valuing life means that we make the most of that supreme gift that has been entrusted to us. I believe that there is no greater way to make the most of the gift of God than to trust in Jesus Christ. In a moment this morning, we're going to have a time of invitation. And in that time of invitation, if there's never been a moment in your life when you, by faith, have trusted in Jesus, when you have received what Romans 6, 23 describes as the free gift of God, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, I pray that you would make the, today the day when you trust in Jesus. Today the day that you receive his gift of eternal life through faith in his son Jesus. But if you have received that gift, if you have eternal life through faith in Jesus, then I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question this morning. Am I counting my days? Or am I making my days count for the Lord? Are you doing everything you can to champion life and most importantly, through making the most of the life that you've been given by God? Are you living for him are you stewarding his gift of life well? In our invitation this morning, our altars will be open. And if God is speaking to your heart today, if he, maybe, he's, maybe he's impressing upon you. Maybe he's convicting you in a way to say, you know, there's this thing in your life that, that, it, that, that is not honoring to me. God is saying maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit that you have. Maybe a sin that you fall. And God is saying, look, there's this, you are not honoring me 
with your life because there's this sin in your life. And he's calling you to repent of that. He's calling you to surrender that to him, to have a heart that is fully yielded to him, held by God. Whatever way God is speaking to you, whatever way he's calling you to respond in obedience today, I pray that you would surrender your life to him, that you would trust Jesus for salvation, that you would live every day believing in him, making the most of the gift of life that you've been given. So that someday when you and I stand face to face with Jesus in that moment of judgment. That we would be able to say, because of my faith in your son. Because I've trusted in you. I'm believing in the promise you've given me of eternal life. And we would hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you that you have 